there's no test it's invisible it's an invisible illness and you know with something like a stress factor on your rib a scan will show that but to be diagnosed through process of elimination and there's nothing you can do there and then which will say okay yeah you have really overstepped the line from a physical perspective you need to have a few days backing off Hey, what's up? Welcome to Last Stroke Counts. We've got another great guest in the house today. We've got Susie Beard. And without further ado, Tom, would you like to give a little bit of an introduction of who our guest is today? Yeah, yeah. Welcome, Susie, to the podcast. Um, again, it's uh, uh, the last of our rogue year athletes that we, we've had on the podcast. So uh, again, like, exciting to get into this one and just get a little bit more of the backstory. Um, but just to, just for everyone to know like some of, some of her achievements during her career, so uh, double Henley Royal Regatta winner, but in the same year. So won both the pair and the eight in 2021. That's pretty special. Uh, World Cup three bronze medal, uh, head of the Charles winner, um, part of the Tokyo squad, um, uh, World University Championship silver medal. And then I think one of the most impressive things is uh, two years from the first time you sat in a boat to when you uh, raced for GB. So 2013 was, was when you started rowing and 2015 uh, is a GB vest at SM Regatta. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. <laughs> right. I think we'll start with with all our guests is like how, how you got into rowing. How I got into rowing. Um, so growing up and stuff, I didn't know anything about rowing. Um, I literally, the only boat I ever got in was a sailing boat. Um, so I grew up around boats, around horses, very lucky mum and dad sort of got us into all sorts of sports um and then when I went to university um so I started at Oxford Brooks in 2011 um I think it's safe to say that I um went out a bit too much and <laughs> didn't really spend much time at the actual university um and no surprise failed my first year monumentally um I think I actually got 13% in one module, which was impressively bad. Wow, the whole 13%. <laughs> it was, yeah, not my best. Um, and in the same, in that same summer when my results came out after my first year, um, it was the Trade Trial Olympic Games. And there was a lot on the, like they were, they were showing a lot on TV about how the majority of the team had done a lot of rowing at university. Um, and I guess being quite tall and being into sport when I was younger, mum and dad just thought, you need to, you need to sort your life out, basically. So rowing was just the way to keep you on the straight and narrow. Yeah, yeah. So mum and dad were like, Suze, come on, like, Brooks is meant to be really good for rowing. Like, you're tall, you're, you can be athletic. At this point, I wasn't particularly athletic. I had way too many dominoes and quite a few VKs. But anyway. Um, Certain your age with a VK. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that, um, September I went and signed up at Oxford Brooks. Cool. So what happened after? Um, what, immediately after? Well, how, bit, how did you, did you do it? So we, we speak to a lot of people, they say when they first started rowing, it was just going to be for fun and they weren't going to take it seriously. Oh yeah. Was there so. a period like that or did it, did it, did it, did it go quite quickly into something serious or just take its time? 
I think the first sort of six months really took its time. Um, I very begrudgingly signed up and I wasn't too keen on the idea, if I'm completely honest. I was very much like, oh, I've got, I've got my friends outside of Rome. I don't, I don't, I'm not going to go to the socials. I don't want to do this and all the rest of it. I think that attitude lasted maybe about a week and almost immediately I just thought, this is awesome. Like the team culture, the environment, like the socials, everything was great. And initially I think I then sort of did it for the people rather than the sport. Um, and as time went on, I think, you know, my coach, Alan French, shout out, great guy. No, we know Alan, yeah. He's a, he's a wedding blue coats now. Yeah, we fix the yoga sir. He's a, he's a legend. I owe so much to that man. He's an absolute legend. He saw through the uh, the tears and the tantrums and yeah, really, really um, helped me to where to get to where I am now. And yeah, so I would say probably it'd be interesting to hear what Alan says about this. <laughs> yeah. But I think maybe six months into my own career, that's when I started thinking mm, actually like I could be quite good at this um and sort of it then progressed from there I think what's really interesting about your career in particular is that you sort of started it a little bit later than most people so for example I got into rowing when I was about 13 and I think it was the case for you as well Tom Morgan said she started rowing when she was 10 yeah but how old were you when you started um 20 they say most, but then again, but we've discussed this as well, rowing, most people don't pick up rowing, especially if you're going to do sweet rowing until you're sort of 14, 14, 13, 14 anyway. So most people who get into it have a sport that they've enjoyed, like done to a, yeah. not necessarily a high level, but like really got them into like that way of oh, being an athlete. Yeah. yeah. So in my old club, we weren't actually allowed to go into sweet boats until you were like 16. I think it was just to protect your back. Yeah. It was the same, same as Leander as well. Yeah, there's no sweep events in in Britain under J14, I think. And J13 is like ox, octopus, isn't it? Yeah. Odds, yeah. Oh, the octopus. Yeah, yeah. Um, I also want to know first, like, how was Brooks as a, a, from a novice perspective? Because I think a lot of people go there because it's renowned for being a, yeah. a, a, a like, a good rowing university. And I know a lot of guys who I rode, rode with who were good rowers at school. So they were kind of good rowing when they went there. And for them, like, it was definitely the mentality but for someone who's never wrote before? Um, so I think I was very lucky that in the year I signed up to join the novice squad was a year where they were running a full novice programme. I think this current season is the first time since my year they've um, run a full programme full-time. I could be wrong, but you know, I think. So that's, you know, what, ten best part of 10 years. So yeah, I really lucked out with the timing of it. Because there'd be absolutely no way I would have been part of Oxenbrook's University Boat Club if that program wasn't there. Um, and yeah, I remember just sort of being quite starstruck by everyone. You know, you had, you had there wasn't very many women there. Um, so it was mainly men. But, you know, you'd guys coming in in like their GB light curlers and you knowing that they've just got a medal at under 23s or something, I'd be like, oh my God, like this is, this is amazing. Um, but I think the way I describe Brooks to anyone is it was just such a big family. Like it, you know, everyone looked out for each other and you push the person in front, person behind. Um, so yeah, big family vibes, to be honest. Awesome. Yeah. That's really cool. It's good to hear like, uh, 
they say like it's it's a different perspective for someone who's never rode who's been there and yeah. they still found that squad like a really like fun thing to be a part of but i think also like i spent they all merge into one but i think i spent about five years at brooks um and that was all i knew so i'd never been part of any other boat club so i thought brooks was the norm like i thought the brooks approach was how everyone approached rowing but as my own career has developed, it's not particularly normal. <laughs> yeah, it would be a completely different sport if every club approach it like Brooks do. Yeah. But whatever they're doing is working. So, oh, absolutely. Other clubs should look yeah. out. I think it's not even too, too shy to say that Brooks might be one of the best universities to row for in the world in terms of like the quality of their rowing programs. If you if you have a look at how many Henley wins they get each year. The depth as well, yeah. The doll yeah. squad, yeah. Yeah, I remember I did the training session with Brooks once probably seven years ago in about 2016 and we just had six or seven eights in a session oh, yeah. so like, just the amount Smash of athletes that we got yeah and i mean i could talk about brooks for, for a very long time but it whenever i talk to anyone about it like my whole i think like my whole face just lights up like i had the best time ever there and it was a very sad day if it's not fun you're not going to do it and especially at that level like you need to enjoy it as one part of trying to put a program together when yeah. we were doing it it was like trying to make it fun as much as rowing is difficult and you're not yeah. going to enjoy every session like making it fun is going to like have a big big yeah. part of it and like having that depth in the squad and i think high performance centers sometimes get a bad rap because for like poaching or like mm. having like high level athletes join already but like there's no way you can be running five six seven eights and not be developing your own athletes yeah yeah for sure yeah okay cool then so so then that process then of going from brooks to the very sharp and polished gb system uh, well, how yeah. did that come about um through many highs and lows <laughs> of course always i said it broke till 2016 and then i went and rode with sydney rowing club for a year until 2017 and then i just thought you know i did all the dramatic thank you so much oxford brooks i've had the best time ever see you later and then a year later i'm like uh can i come back um <laughs> uh, so yeah i then went back to brooks for another year um and did a master's in psychology um and then that year was when i went and raced the pair in shanghai for the world university games um and it was during that time where i thought i love brooks but if i want to be making the national team i need to be around senior athletes not under 23 athletes um because by that point i was out of under 23s and had to make the leap from under 23 to senior um so yeah that's when i did my application for leander um and yeah that's that year so september 2018 i joined leander club how did you first hear about leander um i think i first heard about leander simply just through brooks like you know you there were a few athletes that would leave brooks and go to leander never very that. few <laughs> never no there's that. a few i got that uh, i rode with a guy called adam moffat who's now coaching at, at teddy's but um i rode with leander and he was at brooks and i think he he had done a bit of both or i can't remember why but he was he had leander kit he rode at leander yeah. and he was at brooks and he went to an ergo session in Leander in one. Oh, some of the boys, the other story. Some of the boys said, I, "I don't think you want to do that." And he's like, "Why? Well, nothing's going to happen." And then one of the coaches, I don't, I won't say his name. I don't know. Which, I don't know which one it was. But apparently, sort of, the, as the story I've heard goes, like they're chatting in the in like the in the corner of the gym and like chatting along. And then he just like stops, like out of the corner of the eye, he's just spotted this Leander all in one. 
walks up to the front of the machine, waits for him to come to the front of the stroke, grabs the front of his all-in-one, and then as he takes the stroke, rips it off him. Oh. It's like, don't wear that shit in here. Oh, the one I heard was a guy zagging uh, in a Leander Lycra, doesn't want the Leander kit in the Brooks gym, so he gets a bunch of the other guys to pick up the like, pick up the erg whilst he's on it and put it outside. <laughs> Not sure whether that's actually true or not, but as legend says. Yeah, it's a good urban legend. Yeah. It's a good rivalry as well. Like, it's all done, I'm sure. I mean, probably the guy wasn't happy that he lost his only one, but like, a lot of it is just trying to get that point across of, you know, if you want to be something, you're going to have to really go for it. And like, if anything, it's sort of almost pays Leander a compliment that that's the club that that Brooks used to be worried about, but potentially in the the last few years, not anymore. Definitely. I think the gap's also been bridged in the last few years, certainly. You see so many more athletes that used to write Brooks or used to write Leander and just make that swap. Well, they've they've had like a a huge improvement in Taurus and Mm -hmm. um, in retaining athletes after they finish being a... So it's not just a student club anymore. So I think that's made a huge impact on them. To be honest, I think having thought about uh, the question you said, how did I first hear about Leander I think it's to be honest just seeing people in the kit and then hearing these stories of the pink palace and the one pea porridge and all that kind of stuff Uh, but I think yeah more and more people are coming to Leander and I don't think it's because they don't like Brooks or they don't want to be part of Brooks but the depth in women's rowing has come on massively and it's sort of just a natural progression Um, yeah yeah, it's run. It's a more of a obviously Brooks training is it's going to have to run around a student yeah. sort of program, whereas Leander has the freedom to train yeah. more throughout the day and stuff. So yeah, it's just a different way of doing things, yeah. but not necessarily better or worse. Yes, yeah, exactly. Um, I want to hear about Australia then. What? Why? Why the decision to go there, and how? How was it when you got there? Well, to be honest, I just thought I want to change, or I'm just going to go to Australia. <laughs> no, um, but good place to go. Literally as simple as that. Um, I was quite envious of people having an experience in the states um so i would have really liked to have gone there but i'd used up all my uh student rowing years at brooks so that couldn't really go any further and then i just thought well australia looks a cool place to go so i'll just get in touch with sydney road club and ask if i can come and row with them for a season and yeah awesome so rowing's really big in australia as well as one of the top rowing nations worldwide how did you find the training to be different was there was there also like a difference in the atmosphere or in the way that you know you were taught to row differently in terms of technique or yeah what was it like um well this is my first experience outside of brooks so i had you know i had to learn quickly that shouting certain things at people wasn't particularly acceptable (laughs) um but i'd say the biggest uh difference in australia in comparison to over here is that and I mean, it's changed now because we have to scroll for part of the trialing system here, but um, I learned to scroll for the first time and they're big on their sculling, spend a lot of time training in singles and I've just been used to smashing around in an eight. So that very was quite a change. It? Yeah. And it was boiling as well, like <laughs> absolutely boiling. Do you forget what a long sleeve is when you're over there? Oh, well, you want the long sleeve because you get sunburn. <laughs> He was like a white long sleeve top. Very sorry. Um, but no, it was it was a really cool experience. Um, made some friends for life whilst I was out there. Um, and I think, to be honest, going over to Australia is probably what made me realise how much I want to row for my country and how much I miss it. Because for the first time in my rowing career, 
I was rowing for the love of rowing, but I wasn't trialing. Yeah. And I really missed that um, sort of drive to want to impress people, the drive to have a, a reason and a motivation to push on on a 30 minute or a 2K or whatever. Um, I, yeah, I really missed that challenge. And I think to be honest, that's what fueled the fire to get on the phone to Alan. So can I just come back to Brooks? Um, as I wanted to give it another go. So at that point, you've already represented GB. Uh, so can you tell us what spurred you on from, you know, deciding that I want to take this more seriously to getting your first GB best? What was that? What was that like? I don't think there's one thing in particular. Um, I think, you know, I, as I've mentioned a bit um, before, um, I... I first fell in love with the team and then falling in love with rowing as a sport sort of came second. Um, and I think probably my shift um, changed from, okay, yeah, I love the team and I love the people I do it with, but actually this sport's pretty cool as well. And I love challenging myself and I wanted to see how far I could get. Um, I didn't really realize that at the time, I don't think, but looking back, probably that's what it was. So having then done that Brooks system, then going to Australia and worked out that Brooks isn't the how everyone else does it, then coming back uh, and transferring uh, or sort of swapping over or getting into Leander, like how was that again, like making another change, different squad, different way of doing things? Um, yeah, it was interesting. Um, I felt really guilty leaving Brooks. Yeah. That was a really hard decision, um, but it was the right thing to do. Um, Joining Leander, yeah. Um, so I started with one of my best mates, um, Annie, Annie Withers. Um, we went through the Brooks system together. She went onto the team. Um, had to come back to Leander for a bit. So it was really nice to be able to start with her. And then obviously Morg was there, um, Ruth was there as well. So I felt like, you know, I had my support around me. Had 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 a lot had a lot of people who I'd you know been rowing with for years um but it was interesting because the dynamic is a bit different at Leander um you know the focus is to win Henley and to get onto the national team whereas at Brooks you know the focus is to win Bucks and win university pennants and well at least at the time I was at Brooks things have changed now so for a long time I was only ever used to doing things for the team. And then next thing you know, oh, actually you've got to do things for the individual. Yeah. So yeah, it you, it was quite a shift in sort of mentality almost. Um, and it was challenging at times, you know, to have to think, okay, this is what's right for the team, but this is what's right for me. How can I manage this? Because they're not always the same. Um, that you know we had a great team at Leander and everyone was very understanding that actually sometimes someone's got to do something a bit different because that's what's right for them um and yeah I mean looking I looking back at when I first started at Leander in comparison to now it seems like a lifetime ago um that it it was it was a smooth transition I think you know you had a lot of support and just being with your mates makes all the difference really that's that odd one sometimes when you have to kind of try and do, yeah, what's right for you is not necessarily what's right for the yeah. team and it can be a difficult decision. I did one year, I um, uh, I think it was 2011 or 2012 for final trials. Um, James Orme, who'd been rowing in the senior team, um, got sent back to Leander 
and I got paired up with him. And at the time, I was just an under twenty three, so like to get the opportunity to go to the final trials with a senior athlete was like huge. Yeah. But my coach, uh, Chris Collin, Leander was like, "No, it's eight heads coming up. Like I don't care. Like you're in the eight. Like you know, you're not going to get any extra sessions in the pairs. It's not happening." And I, I went. We went out a couple of times, like a third session. We did an extra session. He wasn't happy about that. And I was like, oh man, like this sucks. Like what an opportunity. Yeah. So I went to Orm and I said, Orm, listen, like if you go to like the head coach and say, you know, like this is my last shot. I, if I don't get back in the team now, like it's pretty much over. My own career is over. I know the head coach will then go to my coach and be like, look, you've got to get Tom out of the eight and put me in the pair. Mm. So he does this, speaks to the head coach. Head coach obviously speaks to Chris. Next day. Chris pulls me to one side and I have to pretend like I didn't know that I'd kind of inceptioned it. It's a bit evil, but like, it was one of the only times I really like had to kind of like try and like work the system in my favor. But then he was like, listen, you know, um, Mark spoke to me and, uh, you know, we think we're going to let you and Orm just sit in the pair. Thing is, they've seen it all before. They probably knew that you had that conversation. <laughs> Potentially. But um, yeah, no, like, like you said, like that's an interesting one. And it's interesting to hear from what you said that how much... Brooks is focused on the team and how that, that was what you fell in love with first and that that was the thing that was difficult to leave and I think that's probably one of the reasons why they do so well and I, I think with Leander like you said because it really is designed to either get your international team or not there is a high turnover mm-hmm. most people probably only row there for a couple of years they either then get or five well but in the middle like yeah. having gone yeah. within going up to the squad maybe some come back and I think a lot of people look down on or, or like don't want to get sent back. But I know there's fantastic athletes that have been sent back. Like I know Mo Sabihi went to went into the senior team and then got sent back to his club. And yeah. obviously he came back and, and got Olympic gold medal. So it happens. Yeah. But um, yeah, that's a different kind of way of doing it. I mean, Leander just feels like home. You know, you walk in and you're like, oh, I'm back. It's, it's yeah, it's, it's very comforting. And um, I, I don't know, I don't know what it, what it is. It's, it's just, it has a way of sort of, helping people get the best out of themselves whether that's through the coaching the environment um you know the support we have available for us it's it's a very special club to be part of i think the history of it like understanding like how yeah. successful it's been and going in and seeing the names on the wall and like you know the olympic board yeah. at the top of the stairs like yeah. all those things like just kind of get to like you feel like backed up by it yeah like you know if you go out and wear that vest, like you, it stands for something. Yeah. Plus, sure. an extra motivation to just push harder and to show up every day, you know, because yeah. potentially one day you're going to find yourself on one of those boards and who doesn't want that? Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, going a bit off topic, but, you know, my name is on the board and I've got pictures on the walls. And seeing how proud and happy it makes my family is a big motivation. Yeah. You know, like, I've, had a bit of a setback over the past few years and actually I think the thing that I found the hardest was not giving the people who have supported me so much that pride of saying oh there's my daughter's name on the board or you know oh her final's on at this time make sure you tune in or whatever you know it's that's a big part of it I felt so guilty if I didn't perform well especially because at a rowing event like your family's gonna come down from wherever they live like drive Mm -hmm. down to Dorney Lake they're going to stand there for like three hours. They're not going to see you because you're going to like, you can't go and chill with them or anything. Yeah. And then you're going to go out and race. You don't perform the way you want to perform. And you just feel like horrible that they've yeah. spent all this time. I to see you. 
But I mean, but they don't see it. That they way. don't see it that way. No, they definitely don't. They're so embarrassing with like flags. And, like dad will have his GD handkerchief. Like, go serious, go serious. Just that. I, the first time, trip down memory lane, but the first time um, I ever raced her in Great Britain, um, I was with Annie and she, we, we just won the race and we were coming into the um, like metal pontoon or whatever it's called. And we just heard this like commotion behind us and Annie just went, oh my God. She was like, Suze, don't turn around. Obviously I turn around and it's all of our, both of our parents, so all four parents, like charging down, down the towpath with flags and like, yeah, the hanky. I think maybe it was Annie's mummy had earrings in. I specifically remember GVR earrings. Anyway, the girl Sam in front of me just said, don't worry, first time I rode for Great Britain, dad wore a cape. <laughs> I just love it. The GB family supporters group is a savage yeah. group of people. They have their own kit. I know at one point like they made their own fleeces. Well, I think they're like in competition with each other. Like, like who, who can be more? Yeah, who yeah. can be more embarrassing? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who's got the bigger flag? Yeah, yeah. In 2016, I went to watch Coop. It was in Poznan. I, I happened to be in Poland at that time. And Coop is a junior international competition where you have got countries from all around Europe competing, and by far. Everyone was like, who are these GV people, you know? Like, all of them are just screaming so loud. And it, it just kind of leaves an imprint. It's, it's great to see that kind of support network. My grandma, she can't travel. She's too elderly, bless her. But she'll put, um, whenever I race for Great Britain, she'll put a GVL flag up her, like, flag post inside her house. It's so, like, she just loves it. My granny would always, I like ring her up after under twenty threes and be like, and she'll, "How did you? How did you do? Okay, well, yeah, we got a bronze medal." She'd be like, "Oh, that, well, that's all right, isn't it?" And I was like, "Yeah, no, I'm, I'm happy. It's good. I like, still got the poem." She's like, "But, but also, did you beat the Germans?" <laughs> oh no, <laughs> granny! <laughs> oh no! Yeah, yeah. So then, going back to your time at Leander, obviously the big point to talk about would be back to back wins at Henley Regatta, and I don't think many people have ever achieved that or even attempted it so how did that come about even the decision to to do two two events um yeah it, it was um it was a stressful day um but it was awesome I look back at it and I actually think it was probably one of the best days of my life it was really really special um wasn't my decision it was my coach's decision Ross Hunter um, what was the thinking behind it that that you definitely could, or they or they wanted you to just have more racing experience? Or I think you know don't don't like bringing it up too much, but because we'd all missed out on so much racing experience with COVID, I think he saw a real opportunity to win a few events. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's, the more races you can do as an athlete, the better. It just develops you and exposes you to more racing situations. Um, so yeah, I think it was to try be a bit greedy and see how much we can win, but also for the development of the athlete. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Definitely, yeah. I think yeah, having come out of that, I, I definitely saw like we were coaching um, when we came out of that thing, and just like the hunger to race, like because that is as much it like you said, it is stressful and crazy. Yeah. Like that's also the reason why you do it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. My um, I was really really nervous. Like I was steering the pair, and I've never steered down the Henley course before. So I was, I was pretty nervous about that. I just had these visions in my head of, you know, us crashing into the booms and on the commentary being like, 
Leander Club should know better than this. It's their home straight or whatever. But um, got got from A to B fine, so it was all right. But that's all you need sometimes. They, no, I was very nervous, and um, I remember on the Sunday morning, uh, so the day of the finals, um, my brother had just rocked up in his van. He's he's got this van that he absolutely loves and you know does his coffee and camps in his van and stuff like that so he was like right I'm gonna come and watch um gonna stay in the van anyway he met me in the morning and we went to go and get a coffee and he just said to me bloody hell Suze you look like shit <laughs> and I was like thanks Tom that's what you need to hear just what, what, I, this for? Just what I want to hear in the morning of my finals but I was because so nervous like I just looked a bit like a zombie to be honest um, but no, it wasn't. Had you practiced racing both before? Like no. Meta Milo, there was no other event where you doubled up? No. And how was it in training, like having to split your time between the two? We weren't allowed. <laughs> so, so the focus extra was... or? No, so it was um, a, a crazy summer, to be honest. So Sam and I, my pairs partner in 2021, we'd gone out and raced at the third World Cup in Sabaldia, came away with a bronze medal um, on the plane on the way home tapped on the shoulder by the coach that was out with us and just said, Susie and Sam, um, are you free to join the Olympic team um, on their training camp um, for their pre-Olympic for their pre -Olympic training camp? We were both like... Oh. Uh, let me just check my diary. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it seems all clear. Yeah, so that's free, yeah. Yeah, he's so busy, but yeah, sure. I could do that fine. Squeeze it in. Um, and we were like, yeah. He was like, um, it's next Monday for four weeks. We were like, yeah, sure, fine. But obviously it was, you know, coming out of um, COVID time. So we had to isolate for a week. So we went to Sabaudia for a week, isolated for a week, and then went away with the Olympic team for a week for their training spares for part of the Tokyo squad. So we spent, what, six weeks together rowing the pair. Um, so, you know, we had a lot of, prep and and time together for that six weeks but you know coming back off that camp we had been taken out of the Leander group for quite a big chunk of time so you know us being away was relatively disruptive to the rest of the group because you know they were missing two of their athletes who would have raced the eight um but I think that's just a testament to the girls at Leander like to be robust enough to be able to have people out come back in you know just go with the flow um is, is you know it's quite impressive to be able to do um so yeah we came back to leander and from the word go ross just said the focus is to win the remnant so our group chat was actually called win the remnant <laughs> um which is funny um that's a lot more appropriate than most of the group chat nations <laughs> yeah. i've ever had for my crew i, I don't want to know right. <laughs> um so yeah, our group chat was called Win the Remnant and that was the focus. We literally didn't row the pair once. First time we rode the pair before on Henley that year. So yeah, we first rode, we first got in the pair after coming away from that um, Olympic camp was the Wednesday of Henley or maybe the Thursday even because it was too busy on the Wednesday. So and which day did both events start? Saturday. Okay, so you only had to race Saturday and Sunday back yeah. to back. Yeah. Okay, so that makes a bit of a difference. A big difference, yeah. yeah. 
Um, you know, if your racing starts on Tuesday or Wednesday, then and you're racing every day in both events, that's cumulatively quite and a few runs down the track. Definitely adds up, yeah. Yeah. And would yeah. would Henry Warragata happy to space those things out, or did they say no, or um, they accommodate? They definitely did accommodate because we did have a few hours in between each run. Um, but yeah, I remember saying to Ross like, like, please, can we go out in the pair, like? I'm really worried about steering that like we haven't been at. And he just said, like, you're good enough. You don't need to. Don't need to worry. And, um, yeah, I remember when we went out, I think, I, I don't know what you guys would say, but I actually think one of the best things about racing at Henley is rowing in the tea break and in the lunch break and stuff. Because you see all your mates on the bank, like, hey, and you can actually stop and be like, hey, like yeah. you know, if, 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 obviously, if you're not in the middle of the bus, like, but, um, yeah, I, I love I love rowing and tea breaking. I think a part of the reason why a lot of crews do it is just to be able to absorb a bit more. Yeah, water. it's an yeah. amazing event, and if you when you're focusing on racing and when you're in the race, you don't really notice what's around you. So being able to get out and rowing and the lunch break and tea break is is really fun, um, and essential for us as a pair because otherwise we wouldn't have raced. Yeah. We wouldn't have rowed. I'm sorry before before our semi final. Um, so yeah, and then so finals day, which one was first? Uh, the pair, oh, okay, pair was first. Um, and yeah, I just remember, um, rowing through stewards, and Sam just said, Uh, you're about to get your first red box series, and they went through the line, and it, yeah, it didn't really feel real to me, it's surreal, yeah, yeah, it was, it was, it was, yeah, very strange, and then like zero celebration yes. just paddle it in and get ready oh we got we got briefed before you know if you win not when you win if you win um you've got to act really professional like you've got another race in a few hours but you have to when you win at Henley, you have to go into like the a pontoon yeah. and have your interview done so we went in had our interview i think they were briefed to make it yeah. <laughs> quick so you know we could get straight onto our recovery um came into Leander um, and every winning crew gets uh, a bottle of Digby on the Leander sparkling wine. Came into the dock, got presented with our Digby, which very soon after got taken away from us. Yeah, <laughs> um, just a precaution. And then, yeah, Ross and Morg, they were waiting on the dock for us. So they brought our blades in, brought our boat in, and we literally had to get straight out of the boat went into the gym and then started our recovery to make sure we were best prep for the final in the eight. Did it feel like a weight off when, you, when you've won one out of the two? Were you like less stressed? Yeah, then. Um, I, I actually remember thinking that I'm more stressed for the pair because I was just so nervous about the steering. Yeah. Like, you know, Morg is fantastic Cox and I knew that we all like, just you don't even worry about that kind of yeah, stuff yeah. when you're with Morg. Like, obviously, her line was going to be great, and she would read the race and you know feed all the information back to us. But when you're in a pair, I mean, I guess statistically, there's less chance of something going wrong because there's only two of you. But the amount more you have to think about is yeah. is a lot. Um, so yeah, I remember thinking like, oh, if we just need to get through the pair, and then it'll be fine. And then we're warming up in the eight, and I'm like. Oh my God, why do they think that? This is so low bracket. How did the legs feel in the eight? Were you feeling tired or? I mean, it's not uncommon to race twice in a day. Yeah, it, um, I felt good. 
but ready to get box number two. Nice. Yeah. Certainly, like you've competed at backs with Brooks, and sometimes you have to do three finals in a in the same day, like three races. So definitely, definitely used to that with the workload you've done over at Oxford. Oh, Langford. yeah. I mean, there. I remember once um, <laughs> Brooks, so the famous Wimbledon camp. Yeah. Henry wanted to break the record for how many fifteen hundreds we could do. I forget it was either sixty one or sixty three. We did across six sessions, and back in the day, you would do. 1500 spin, 1500 spin, spin, spin. There'd be no recovery paddle. And um, he just said, Brian, what are we going to do? Going to play a game. We're not going to come in to one of you cry. <laughs> and we stayed out then for ages. And then finally one of the boys cried. <laughs> one of the boys goes yeah. yeah. Could be anyone who goes down. Yeah. Um, yeah, Wimbledon is uh, lots of rares. I've heard stories of those camps being pretty savage. Savage. It's funny with a when you do race and when done seat racing again, like from the coaching perspective, you take timings for fit athletes. It's incredible. Like the first one or two will obviously be a bit faster, but mm. then basically they could just repeat, 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 repeat. Yeah, how you can just keep producing the same style time and time again. Yeah, yeah. It just comes down to the training, I guess, a little bit. Yeah. So you will settle into. A pace essentially after your first two or three seat races and they'll just stay there because one of the things that we even found out with training is that rowers have an amazing ability to kind of work at, mm. a, at a certain percentage of expenditure so we could stay at when you're fit and healthy you could stay at 70 percent basically forever would it do you remember that time where you did basically like 12 sets of bench press of like 70 kilos and keep going and we just enough just... rest time to yeah to repeat it's what we're conditioned to do go <laughs> yeah power endurance yeah um i guess then the only last squad to, to talk about is is the time spent in the gb team so rowing at camersham mm -hmm. how did that feel as um, pressure it well i didn't have a particularly normal time because the majority of it i was so unwell mm. um it was really hard because yeah i was at the time i was struggling with the fatigue um but it was undiagnosed. Um, so, you know, I was trying my hardest to produce the numbers that I have done in the past and I was trying to push on, but my body found it very, very hard. Um, and then you just sort of spiral into this, is it my head? Is it my body? Is it both? Um, so it was, it was very stressful because I didn't know how my body was responding. How would you describe fatigue? Because I think maybe some of our listeners don't quite know the extent uh, which you mean. Um, good question. Um, fatigue, to me, fatigue is just total exhaustion of your body. Um, not being in control of how your body is feeling. Not having any consistency in how you're feeling. One day you could feel fine, the next day you could just not get out of bed um and it's not it's a difference between oh i'm tired from training or i feel sore or i had a late night and you know i just need to have an early night tonight it's total body um exhaustion really so is this what have been referred to as overtraining syndrome yeah so or... i've i've been diagnosed with red s um which is relative energy deficiency in sport um and there's not much research around it. Um, it's a relatively new sort of condition. Um, 
and primarily can affect men and women, but there's more cases where it's affected women. Um, and yeah, it's sort of linked into, you know, like chronic fatigue, that, that kind of umbrella. There's also, I've heard of like rhabdo or rhabdomyolysis, which I think is the point at which basically your body starts like breaking down its own proteins. Yeah. Is that? Um, I don't know too much about that, but the experience I had was, um, I'd lost a lot of weight. My hair was snapping and falling out. I developed eczema as what I later learned to be eczema at least, um, which was an autoimmune response to the fatigue. My face was swelling up so badly. I would have to go to A&E. Um, I constantly felt like I didn't just need a rest. Like oh, I just need to have a sit down and a cup of tea. Like mm. I need to lie down and I just need to stop. Um, I cried all the time. Like my tolerance to daily stresses was just non-existent. Um, the whole, and, th and then you, the psycho psychological side of it is you don't want to go out. You don't want to see your friends. You're too tired to do anything. So it, it really affects your entire life, mm -hmm. to be honest. How would you say that affected nutrition? Oh, um, well, to be honest, nutrition is one of the things that got me into that pickle in the first place. Um, I think it's very tricky for females in sport because you're constantly, well, especially in a sport like rowing where power to weight makes quite a big difference on your time. You know, you constantly think, oh, well, if I'm lighter, I'll go faster. So, I, you know, I never actively said, oh, I'm not going to eat that because... I'm going to be too heavy, but I think subconsciously you think about it all the time. Um, so initially my nutrition was very much like, um, just, just not adequate to be honest. Like I was underfed and overtrained for years and the cumulative effect that had on my, on my health and my rowing was really, really damaging. Um, and then nutrition during the the period of fatigue you know I had a lot of support from GB Rowing with um, nutritionalists and physiologists um, around you know how I can manage myself training and what I'm putting in into my body um, so obviously that that helped hugely but there will obviously be days where you're so tired you actually can't make yourself any food like you you can't think of anything worse than like making a meal that's got X amount of protein in, five lots of fruit and veg, enough carb, like it's, even that in itself, in itself could be too much. So that's when you start eating things that you probably shouldn't be eating because it's just easier to. So it's, you know, it's quite such a vicious circle. Um, but now, sort of now I'm through the other side of it. Um, I think you just got to stay on top of your nutrition every day. Like if you have a bad week, you'll pay for it two weeks down the line. You know, there's a bit of a delay. Um, and yeah, you, would, you wouldn't put bad fuel in your car, so don't put bad fuel in your body. I think right, such a repetitive sport as well, and in terms of most things, uh, like injuries or illnesses are generally accumulative. Like you're not gonna, it's not like playing a contact sport, you're not gonna mm. snap something. But like if you row in a bad way, consistently over a long period of time you'll give yourself a problem like with nutrition it's sort of the same thing yeah yeah definitely and I think it's especially as I've got older I think I've noticed the need for it 
more you know getting older and this fatigue has sort of coincided at the same time but when I look back when I was at uni I'm amazed that I could get through the training I did going off what I ate um it, it is very important and I think for, because for so long I didn't eat what I should have I didn't see the need until something went wrong you know I think the higher the level gets as well the more uh, the better you are technically at doing you're sort of like more efficient at ruining yourself like you just <laughs> yeah. get better at completely exhausting yourself yeah so it's just like you get yeah, yeah like it just gets easier and easier to not hit those calories yeah yeah so having been through that phase of fatigue how would you if you were to do it all over if you were to speak to 25 26 year old Susie what would you do differently to kind of prevent that or, or maybe sort of alter the trajectory of of what happened um a few things just eat food <laughs> like as simple as simple as it seems you know eating enough calories to be able to fuel your body and allow your body to recover is so important um and i look back on my younger self and i just think why did you not do that <laughs> do you think that was because you were thinking about weight or just you just weren't really thinking both yeah. think you know when you're at uni you just go with the flow don't you you're not not particularly good at planning your student kitchen is like the worst thing ever and you don't want to spend any time in that um so yeah i think a bit of both like you know we'd always get weighed and things like that so it's weight is constantly on your mind and yeah just no i didn't have any knowledge around nutrition um and at that point you think you're invincible yeah you don't, you don't think anything will ever go wrong. So why would you need to have a protein shake or, you know, have a few more fruit and veggies each day? Um, so I think that would be my first bit of advice. Just fuel yourself properly because you, it's not just for training that day. It's the accumulative effect on how it's going to affect you in a year's time, two years time. And I think just listen to your body. Don't ignore the warning signs. You know, I 2021 was my best season ever, but there were actually a lot of red flags throughout that season, which I proceeded to ignore. Um, you know, my body felt almost numb a lot of the time. Like it, I think it's really impressive on one hand how you can be so tired, so tired, just don't think you can get get through something, and then you hear go and bam, you just switch it, switch it on. Um, but there were definitely times where I didn't feel right. I think something that will stick with me for a long time, we were doing a speed order before Henley in the eight. Um, I was in the stroke seat, Morgan was in the coxing seat. And I'm not really a crier in like training sessions. Like, don't get me wrong, I can be in the changing rooms and floods of tears, but during the actual training, like I generally just get on with it. Um, and I just said to more, I was like in floods of tears. And I just was like, more, I can't do this speed order. Like I was like, I feel really bad that like, I can't do it. Anyway, she was like, Suze, turn around and show the girls. And I'm like, <laughs> crying. And they were like, we're fine. Like, we can do it. We can do it. And I did do it and I did get through. But, you know, my, my body was telling me I... I was close to, to to really falling. Um so yeah, I think don't ignore the red flags. 
you know, when, when your your body's trying to tell you something and listen to what it's telling you. Yeah, you're the only person that knows you, really. Yeah. And I think it's a difficult line to tread um, as a coach because part of your responsibility is to pull out more than what than what your athlete yeah. thinks they have. Yeah. Um, but also, like, it's difficult. And I've I definitely experienced the wrong way in terms of, especially when you're sort of training at the end and you've given up your job, you're probably, like, even if you've got a job, it's something part-time that works around it. Like, you've clearly sort of, like, devoted your life to it. Mm. And then to have coaches, you know, be like, oh, I'm, I'm not feeling great this session. But I had one time when, like, someone, like, one of our crew, like, genuinely had, like, a cold, like, heart rate was up, sore throat, whatever. Tried to tell the coach in the morning. He was like, "Oh, great! Well, there are three guys that can't go out for a session." Yeah, and like that's not like, like that's not like productively gonna. Mm. You're not going to get more out of the crew, and sometimes it's difficult. To, like I said, especially if you're working with juniors or novices, like you know, people can try and make up excuses to get yeah. out of sessions. And sometimes, as a coach, like it's your responsibility to kind of like push them into it. Yeah. But it must be hard for coaches because with you know fatigue related issues there's no test it's invisible do. it's invisible it's an invisible illness and you know with something like a stress fracture on your rib a scan will show that but to be diagnosed with fatigue it's through process of elimination and there's nothing you can do there and then which will say okay yeah you have really overstepped the line from a physical perspective you need to have a few days backing off so yeah, I do. I I I don't envy coaches with having to navigate that because I think it's a bit of a minefield, to be honest. But as an individual and as an athlete, I think you know your body very well. We're very in tune with our bodies, and I think there's you know a constant internal dialogue dialogue of, oh, I don't feel quite right. No, you're fine. You can carry on. Oh, but no, this happened, or you know, and it is constantly goes round and round, but. I think having those that internal conversation with yourself really shows that there probably is something that needs to be addressed because the sport isn't for for the faint-hearted, you know. Like if you wanted to do it and you felt like you could do it, you would just get on with it. Um, so yeah, don't, listen to your body. Yeah, I think you do know. You probably almost forget like um, when you're in the team and you and you're constantly um, you might be doing your morning check-ins. It's a special on camp. You'd fill that in, right? You'd, we in the pot. Yeah, so you weigh in the pot and you'd get given like how hydrated you were, and then also you'd give like a like one to ten on sleep, one to ten on how you feel today. You're checking your heart rate every morning. That becomes quite normal. Like after I finished in the team I started I had a bit like a period where I was feeling really tired I think I think actually what happened is I went back to playing rugby I broke my nose a few times I couldn't really breathe through my nose so I wasn't sleeping very well but I kind of knew that something was different for me and I went to the GP and I was like trying to explain it and I could kind of feel like she was she was just like oh like you're not sleeping well I was like mm. this is in context of like someone who's like over the last seven years yeah yeah like no like I know my body like yeah, trying to explain yeah. like I really do know it quite well yeah and exactly. uh, I think like that's something I mean, that's something to do, like, even if you're not on a squad where you're going to get your wee tested or uh, you're going to have, like, your ear tests in the morning, like, you can still wake up every morning, take your heart rate exactly. and r rate how you slept and rate how you feel. Is that something that you did before um, or more after or were there any changes like that that you made? I've got a spreadsheet now which goes back for months and I just do it myself every morning. I will weigh myself once a week. I'll take my heart rate in the morning. I'll say uh, my perceived shape. Um, 
what else is it? My perceived shape, my quality of sleep, my heart rate. Um, and then I'll have a column for each session, what the mileage was, what my average heart rate was, how it felt. Um, I don't do it so much on the run up to racing because I don't want to think, oh my God, my heart rate's a few beats higher or something. But I think generally re reporting key facts like that over time, you can see trends and you can look back and see, oh, actually for the past month, my resting heart rate has been creeping up or something. And then you can use that data. That's hard facts that you, you know, you, I, I, I often think like when you think, or is it me just making this up or is it real if you've got a fact to back it up with that's very that's very helpful yeah because there is that voice in your head that will convince you otherwise yeah. and i've like i've one of the times that i tore a disc in my back i did it power cleaning Oof. and i and i felt it go but then i was yeah. like no, no like it hasn't like i'll finish the set yeah. so then i went out and finished like, the whole set on it and then towards the end of the day yeah it gets yeah. worse and worse and worse yeah so that's definitely like to yeah. have that to like back yourself up yeah and I think the other big bit of advice I would have, um, so, you know, listening to your body and fueling yourself efficiently and suitably, they're two, um, like, preventative measures. Um, but I think something that I definitely could have done better when I was coming out of the fatigue and rehab is to think my body doesn't know what split I'm pulling. It only knows how hard it's working. So don't think... Oh, okay, I'm back on the ag. I can be pulling the numbers I was before. You know, be patient with it and be kind to your body. You know, it, it doesn't know the number. It only knows how hard it's working. So it's only your ego that is being damaged. No one else really cares actually about the number. All the all that matters is that you're progressing and you're getting healthy again and by getting on the egg and trying to smash out your ut2 that you would have done before just isn't a way to do it so yeah don't look at the number just go off how you're feeling definitely and also if you want to make sure that your career lasts as long as possible and you know you have as little interruptions as you can with injuries and another setbacks like fatigue you have to be thinking long term there's no use in thinking short term like this next ergo this next session mm -hmm. sometimes it's hard not to because you're just so bogged down in the day-to-day -day training where you think oh shit it's wednesday how am i going to get through yeah. to saturday but you're going to be thinking like how am i going to be feeling next season or the yeah. year after this yeah. and am i going to burn out yeah how long is my career going to last so and of course like there will be times where you've got a 2k ergo test and like you know it's part of your selection you wake up in the morning you're like oh i don't feel great you've got to just go for it. Like yeah. you have to see, okay, this has been the priority for the past two weeks. Like it, it, right now it doesn't matter that I'm not feeling my best. I've just got to give it my best on the day. Um, but no, you're, you are right. Like the longevity of, of your training behaviors are really, really important. And I like the idea of do a hundred percent of the program at 80% rather than 80% of the program at a hundred percent, like do it yeah. all. Yeah, I had a good, I had a great one when I uh, had a coach said to me like you need to identify a couple of pieces a week, yeah, a couple of sessions a week where I'll you really want to perform. Because I was just trying to rinse myself on every single session, and that made a big difference. Because like you said, then you you're running eighty percent Monday, Tuesday into your half hour Wednesday, and then yeah. you fire for it. So yeah. yeah, that's something. Um, and then so then coming back out of it 
is there any are there any other things that you any things that you like that you did or anything else that you would change like returning from illness um so i've returned from illness twice first time around i got it a bit wrong and had to go back <laughs> and then sort of learned from my mistakes and redid it so i first got ill in january 2022 i've had two sort of relapses of this fatigue um i tried to come back after being ill um for april trials in 2022 um but i came back way too quickly and if you sort of imagine the triangle you've got to make sure you've got your base at at the bottom so it can be a, a tall peak and i didn't spend long enough at my base i sort of got a bit too confident and thought oh great i've got a season's best on this and you know my ut2 is like only a few seconds off or whatever and i just got a bit sort of carried away with myself and then started tumbling downhill pretty rapidly so i then had to take a month completely off and work back up from the bottom again and i think what i did really well second time round is build that base um I spent a lot of time training in a UT3 zone, so that's really quite light um, in comparison to what we would ordinarily do. So we, we were talking, I've noticed that we didn't explain UT1, UT2, so it stands for Utilization Training Zone. So it's generally like a heart rate build, building zone, so UT1 heart rate would be like 170, something like that? Well, it depends on, depends on the on individual. individual yeah. then, if you want to generalize, it will be anaerobic, and then UT2 will be aerobic. About 150, yeah. 150. Yeah. So UT3, would you be going on heart rate? So that's probably about half of your 2K wattage, if anyone's interested. Yeah, so I, I've i got a simple mind, simple Brooks mind. I would go with um, UT2, you should be able to have a conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then UT3 is even easier than that so have a conversation but you know be a bit breathy ut3 be able to have a consistent conversation with somebody um my heart rate zone for a ut3 would be average 150 145 i've got quite a high heart rate a lot of others what's your resting heart rate morning Uh, resting heart rate about 54 okay it's not that high no what's the lowest you know of well from a training perspective when i start training it okay shoots up yeah um but yeah some of the girls their resting heart rate is like 40 yeah it's mine was in the 60s yeah (laughs) yeah oh my god you'll pull heart i know but then i could get my heart rate up to 210 when i was doing a 2k so you saw 210 mine was like like maybe 48 49 but then i wrote again this adam moffitt i remember uh because we used to get told if your heart rate is 10 beats above normal you definitely don't train like that was kind of the cut off right but his is so low that he he came in one day and was like oh my heart rate's like 48 like i shouldn't train today i was like what that's that's good for me yeah that's as low as my guess <laughs> yeah. what do you mean yeah well it just shows how individual it is really yeah um but now i think spending more time in that ut3 zone and then progressing to ut2 then ut1 um sort of really helps out those key foundations so that's sort of like um checking the ego because to to go down and row really light and yeah. see awful numbers and not be happy with it like that's yeah. a, that's a head i think head just turn the screen away yeah. just don't you don't want to know yeah you know look at it at the end and then you just got to think okay yeah it's not what i was doing a year ago but it's better than what i was doing last week or it's better than what yeah. i was doing last month yeah yeah you've got to measure yourself in a different yeah, way yeah definitely and um it's seeing your progression is 
is very satisfying because when you first start rowing, you know, you're getting PBs every week, you're yeah. seeing big improvements, and then you don't really get that for a long time. Like, I mean, I still haven't PB'd on my 30 minutes since 2019. Like, it's been a long time. But seeing those weekly improvements when you're returning from injury or illness is, is nice. <laughs> Yeah, going back to start mode again. Yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, like having a setback like that is actually a real opportunity to address some of your weaknesses. You know, I I didn't spend that much time, um, like I feel like I've talked a lot about Brooks, but we didn't spend that much time training in UT2 zones at Brooks. Like everything was just really hard. So actually my UT2 wasn't that good. So I was using that time to to come back from the fatigue Actually, my UCT, there was a point where it was the best it had ever been. Um, and, you know, just whether it's, oh, I need to use this time to improve my trunk or improve my technical focus or, you know, there's, there's loads of things that you can, when you're coming back from something, you've actually got more time to focus on. Yeah, there's always other stuff that you can do around the outside. And like definitely when you have support from yeah. physios and stuff, there's just little things you can get into. Yeah. I, I generally think as well, like one of the, the things that I always used to remember is, when someone got injured being like oh my god that's such a bad time to get injured like i would never like i'm so glad i'm not getting injured now mm. like my first six weeks at leander when we were in the um trial period someone got a, like an infection in their hand like all swelled up and i was like oh my god it's like the worst time to get injured but then he came back from it and that's yeah. fine and then when i get injured it always feels like there's never a good time there's like absolutely time. never a good time but the only thing worse then getting injured is coming back too soon and getting re And then going back again. It's yeah. so easy in hindsight because at the time as well, like you're always chasing, or for me at least I always, I was never like the standout person in the in the squad. So I always was kind of chased from the bottom. Yeah. And then you get stuck in times. I know when I've had a really bad back when I was in the team and I maybe haven't had some performances or I've missed some stuff because of my back. And then like it maybe hadn't been feeling that good that week but mm -hmm. it's Wednesday and it's half hour day and Jürgen's here and being like, okay, well, like yeah. time to do some damage. Or never. Like time to do some damage to myself yeah. and yeah. like hopefully it's not too much. Yeah. But that, again, I think it comes with experience, but also in the squad, like there's a certain, you don't, you can't really be a novice in your first year and walk up to your coach and be like, I'm just going to go on the bike today, mate, because I'm just not quite feeling it with my back, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like it takes a level of... Um, yeah experience to know that yeah um, but that was one thing when i went back to leander from the squad i wanted to finish my year out at leander but i've really really been struggling with my back so like i just said to beach i was like listen and if it's not a test i'm gonna be on the bike yeah and obviously he trusted that i was i was gonna work and do the same thing on the bike mm. that i would do on the rowing machine and if anything i probably got fitter because uh bikes are savage well because there's no oh, what i realize is there's no uh rate caps so when we do a low level ergo for an hour yeah you're capped at generally 20 at the most 18 yeah. 19 or 20 whereas on the bike you you're spinning at any any speed you want so yeah but i guess you still train in heart rate zone no probably i'm sometimes maybe but normally yeah. i just probably be ragging myself wasn't the thing back then so what would you try um judge your intensity off of um i guess i just i'd have a um like a watts like an average watts that i'd want to produce i guess so like for for like a ut2 session i'd probably be trying to do like 250 something like that ut2 or 250 i don't know i don't know if i'm getting those figures wrong i think like half half hour was always the challenge was to try and go over 300 yeah. 
Yeah, which is trying to get. But a half hour test on the bike is horrific. Yeah, it's horrible again because yeah. it's not recap, so you this you can sprint. Do you remember who's got the record for the under bike half hour, or who used to have it? Nick Middleton. No, I think it was Charles Cousins with something like four hundred, maybe even four fifty plus watts. It was absolutely disgusting. He's a savage. I watched him do his five k and go sub six in the last two. Like imagine doing three k and then going sub six. It's ridiculous. Yeah, it's wild. Ridiculous. Yeah. So, so following on from from kind of advice coming out of injury, is there any other general advice that you would give either yourself when you were younger or someone who's just starting out? Maybe someone who's done what you did. They've started wearing at uni. They've started to think that they could take this maybe a bit more seriously. Um, I think, you know, for for me looking back, um. I thought I spent a lot of my time thinking I'm on the back foot this person's done this and this person's done that and I haven't done this I think just remember that everyone is very different everyone brings very different things to the table um and everyone's experiences are obviously going to be different like there is there is nobody out there who is exactly the same as you and it's easy to say oh, I just wish I started a year earlier or I wish I was at this club. But actually just really lean into your experience because it it makes you the athlete you are and the person you are. And, you know, yeah, it may have been better if you started a year earlier, but actually by starting year, a year later means that you've had different experiences which will help you in your rowing. You may not see it and you, you may not, you, you know, you may not realize it at the time, but actually having different experiences brings strength not not a not a negative yeah it's definitely not a detriment yeah yeah um so yeah i think just just lean in for lack of a better word lean into the experiences you've had whether that's in a rowing setting or not and use it to the best of your your ability that's a good one i don't think we've have you have you answered that question have you got anything that you would give yourself I think just trained harder. No, I, I used to basically think I wanted to do 100% of the training. I was the guy who didn't want to miss a session. So there were times where I've been ill, where I've just been throwing up or really wasn't feeling up to it. But I used to have this mantra of, there are only three acceptable excuses of why you cannot go through training. One, both your arms are broken and you cannot row. Two, both your legs are broken and you cannot walk to training. Or three, you've died. So unless one of those three is applicable, go to fucking training, no matter what. Right. Yeah, that to me um, screams me when I was uh, 18 to 20. And I also thought I was invincible and nothing would break me. I, I think... think we've all been in that phase. But <laughs> I think looking back, there's times where A, I should have gone to training when I didn't. And B, I shouldn't have gone to training when I did. <laughs> so I think it can, there's strengths and weaknesses to that approach yeah i think like train smarter not harder yeah. and to a certain extent yeah i think like probably one of the best pieces of advice i got was off Anne redgrave who's uh who's the team doctor and obviously was looking after me when my back was done and she was like you're the only person that's looking out for you mm. and it's not to say that other people aren't don't have your health as part of their interest but it's only part of it yeah and to you it is everything that you've got so like you need to sometimes you're going to have to turn around to your coach and be like yeah look i'm sorry i can't do this session um and i think it's about having 
it grows over time but like having trust in your ability a little bit and like you said like not always necessarily trying to rush back um just trying to think about i guess what we've discussed already like longevity like what's actually going to be more helpful for me in the long term um and sometimes that sometimes that means going slower so for me when i uh when i first turned up man they used to call me the prawn because my um, back was just like bent over like that. I just never, I've got quite a long back anyway. I hadn't done enough core work. Um, but I've been rowing that way so long, like I really struggled to try and row differently and see my scores come down. So I guess also like check the, check the ego. And I think like if you're going to succeed in any way, like you have to be able to take criticism and you have to be able to like just let that let that bit go and just be like, look, we're going to break this down and the next two weeks my scores are going to be shocking but i'm going to just work out this different way to do it yeah. so when you're trying to look out for yourself more how do you overcome the feeling of guilt of trying to not let your teammates down because i'm sure that it, it would be an easier decision to skip a couple of training sessions but don't you feel like you're letting the team down how do you overcome that or how would you deal with it yeah so it's not about uh, for me i would say it's not about um trying to do less or i think it's like you said, it's more about just kind of listening to what you what you need. I think ultimately, deep down, you know. Like if you really ask yourself a question, like deep down, like should should you be going wrong? Like you you kind of know if you could or you couldn't. Occasionally, maybe there's an there'll be an opportunity where you don't feel great, but you have to go out. Like if you were racing anyway, like you get out and you can put a performance in, and and like I think you can surprise yourself and you can kind of take some some power in that from knowing that even when you're not feeling completely your best you can still put a performance down but i think it, it's just a case of like understanding that like harder isn't always better and like saying like oh i didn't i didn't like absolutely end myself on that ergos therefore i've let my crew down like no like actually by not destroying myself that we're going to have a better session tomorrow or you know i'm not going to like get myself ill and miss the next week so it's just kind of like changing that perspective and just understanding that sometimes um you know having it's you could do three sessions on on a jaffa cake and you can be like yeah i'm really hard and that that makes me strong because i haven't had to take any food but like harder isn't always better like i guess sometimes it's just trying to be sensible but that comes with with time ultimately you'd be letting your team down more if you missed the most important races in the spring season so yeah. again try and look ahead think in terms of seasons not in terms of sessions or, or weeks if possible yeah and no, i agree i think you've got to look at the bigger picture and yeah in the ideal situation no one in the crew would ever miss a session everyone would always do everything the hardest they can everyone would always be getting pbs but that just doesn't exist I, in my 10 years of rowing I've never ever come across anyone who can do that so I think it's all about just managing the situation and coming up with a plan that has the performance you know at the heart of the of the decision yeah cool amazing I've got some quick fire on questions that I wanted to ask go on then um what's your favorite crew type and why um I would have always said a woman's pair. Um, I love how much you contribute to it. Being 50% of a crew is pretty cool. 
Um, and it'd be quite bad if it doesn't go to plan. But um, yeah, I'd say a women's pair, like when you get that up and running and when it clicks, it's really special. But in recent months, I would say a single. Um, I really enjoyed learning a new skill. Um, and I think the same reasons as why I like the pair, the single is just more exaggerated. You know, it's only you. It's yeah. you and the boat. It's all on you, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, Mog. I didn't say a women's day. I'm sure it's for good. <laughs> this is going to be an interesting one. If you could choose to be a part of any squad in the world mm. and like a crew in their training program, what would it be and why? Any rowing squad? Yeah. Probably an American university. Which one? Oh, I don't know which one. Virginian. It's that, it's that uni mentality. Yeah. Yeah. I... There's two girls I know from Virginia, Heidi Long and Abby Bird. They remind me so much of each other and the ethos that they have and the it's infectious to the rest of the team. And I just think that must be a really awesome, awesome team to be part of. You see some some of the stuff on like TikTok and Instagram, like fifty or sixty eggs in a room. Everyone yeah. actually going for like the size of the programs. That looks like really. Fun it's like Brooks are on steroids. Yeah, it just makes you want to train. Yeah, you look at that, and you're like, oh, I want to be part of those. Yeah. I also I also want to get that job fixing the row machines. <laughs> so if you're listening, get in touch. Inquiries at rogan.com. Yeah, <laughs> happy to fly over to the states to come and fix your row machine. Sweet. Um, out of all the places that you've rowed and tried rowing, or maybe like you did some training camps, what are your top three? Top three location. So my favorite place, I think, is probably Penrith in Australia. Um, at the weekends, we would go and... So Sydney Rowing Club train in Sydney, which like in the, the center of the city. Um, that was also really cool, like rowing in yeah. Sydney Harbour, but... At the weekends, we would go and train in um, Penrith. And it was just so cool. Like you'd go down this sort of little estuary almost and the trees and the, not quite a mountain. But I'll say a mountain um, to add to in fact that, you know, it'd be up really high around you and it'd be a little sort of estuary. And, you know, you'd hear all the little white birds and stuff like that. It just felt like you were a million miles away. And... That was that was a pretty cool place. Mag to magical. Yeah. So that's that's number one. Yeah. That's number one. Um number two, I've got to love the Brook Strait. Brook Strait down at Wallingford, like best place in the world. Yeah. That's funny. Morgan also said uh, her home turf. I think that's one something like always holds memories yeah. for first. Yeah, I feel maybe that should be number one. <laughs> yeah, I um I actually told my family that's where I want my ashes spread. So anyone listening, <laughs> pay attention. <laughs> I love it there. But only during four, eight side-by-side -side battle paddle. Yeah, and you know, you're smashing your blade into the bush as <laughs> you've all been rammed down it. Um, no, there's something really, really special about Wallingford. Um, it's a nice bit of water. Yeah. Number three... I mean, just to the experience, we've got to say uh, Shanghai in China. Yeah. <laughs> it was something else out there. It really was. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've heard of quite a few people again say that because they have, they have um, 
2007 Junior Worlds because they normally hold it as like a pre right. like to test it out so obviously Junior Worlds in 2007 2008 and then FISA as well so I've heard a lot of people say they like that it was just like it was just really just huge and just crazy it, like it was just a completely different experience like you know I think the reason why I like Penrith was because of the surroundings Brooks it has changed my life that stretch of river and then China it was just yeah, I've never experienced anything like it. Like it was boiling hot. You had to go to the toilet in a hole in the ground. And yeah, it was just very, very different. Definitely one thing about rowing is it can take you to some strange places that you would otherwise never Love have gone to. Yeah. We did in 2010, we did um, Belarus. Uh, which yeah. was absolutely just weird. Yeah. Like really like time travel. <laughs> yeah. And like they, we stayed that the hotel was rough. But like GB Rain had gone out the year before to to like scout a good hotel and they're like, This is like the best hotel in the city. <laughs> we'll see about that. Yeah. Cool. Um, so what's your favorite race that you've ever done or that you'd like to do again when you're like sixty, seventy? Um, my favorite race, and I've thought this for a while now, um, it would be um Bucks Regatta in twenty fifteen. You like Nottingham that much, yeah? I love Nottingham. Yeah, it's a great place. No, we were in the Coxus Four, and um, we'd hardly raced it. Um, well, we'd we'd never raced it. We'd hardly trained in it. Um, it was just sort of a add-on to the weekend, and we did. We weren't expecting big things, but we just thought, as we're here, mayor's well do another race. And we did the time trial, and I can't remember exactly, but I think we came second or third in the time trial, and it was all very very small margins. And that's when we kind of thought, oh, shit, like, we can, we can actually win this if, you know, we put our minds to it. And we won the um, semi into the A final. And it was just one of those races where the plan came together. We all just really bought into it. And it was it was really special. And I think that's probably a turning point in Brooks Women. Um you know, up until that point, we hadn't won a huge amount, um, but we got our first championship gold medal. Yeah, yeah, success, we success for sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So yeah, out of everything I've done since, you know, doing it with those girls and um, to be the underdogs and come out on top was really cool. Cool. Uh, Tom, do you have any closing thoughts? Uh, well, thanks so much for coming on. I can really appreciate it. Um, Hopefully, uh, we'll we'll be doing some other bits and pieces together um, as as we go along. We'll definitely have you have you on again to do some more podcasts. We'll hopefully do one with uh, with the whole team. We've got six coming, but no, really appreciate it. I really appreciate your insight and like hopefully, well, I know that a lot of what you said is going to resonate with people, and I think that a huge part of doing this podcast was be able to get that kind of information out to people. Um, who are also feeling like they're struggling or or just different little ways to maybe avoid some of the pitfalls that we've been through so like to hear like those things and like for you being honest about how you how you got it wrong sometimes and then how you fixed it is amazing it's like absolutely everything that we wanted to kind of do with this podcast so like really appreciate it thank you thank you so much for coming on Susie like Tom said I think it's really great to touch upon the parts of rowing that not many people speak about because I think it's also so important to know how to spot those red flags in advance and maybe you know we're going to spare you like a couple of injuries or a few months of you know just staying out of the boat and 
hopefully this can inspire some some people who maybe have been struggling to to kind of push on and then continue their rowing journey and get the most out of their boat and maybe get some more international vests under their wings so thank you no thanks for having me i love rowing and it's completely changed my life for the better um so you know if you're just starting out and you know you think oh my god it's a big scary world it's not like we're all just normal people have fun every day and you know look after yourself and see where it will get you awesome where can people find you online instagram i actually don't know what my instagram handle is should i tell you yeah it's Susie underscore dear okay <laughs> surprise surprise that's where you can find me original <laughs> awesome so i think that just about wraps it up for today thank you so much for tuning in uh definitely share this video out to those who might derive some value from this and for now easy there Cue the music.